Well, as always, church, it is good to be with you. If you're new or visiting, my name is Tyler David. I'm the downtown AM campus pastor, one of our preaching pastors and elders here at the Stone. We're glad that you're here. If you have a Bible, go and open up to Ephesians chapter 2. To Ephesians chapter 2. And we'll be continuing on in our series through the book of Ephesians today. Um, before we get into the text, I want to just take a moment to celebrate something with you from my personal life, because I have the microphone, I can do it. And so um, we're going to celebrate something from my personal life. Just a little over two weeks ago, God blessed me and my wife, Lauren, with our second child, a healthy baby boy named Henry Stephen David. Yes, thank you. He loves applause already. He already gets that. Um, I'll show you a picture of him, actually. It's my little boy. Um, and so if you want more pictures, follow me on Instagram. It'll be there all the time, okay? Um, but we're so thankful for him. We pray for him for a long time. And unfortunately for Henry, like his sister Elle, he will now be a consistent sermon illustration for the rest of his life. Um, so you'll, I'm sure you'll learn about him and his personality over the coming years through my preaching. But I just want to celebrate that with you guys, my church family. Well, one thing Henry will learn over the course of his life that all of us have learned over the course of our lives is that things are not always what they appear to be. Things are not always what they appear to be. All of us have had thoughts or opinions or thinking that we could have sworn was right only to find out later that we couldn't have been more wrong. We had an understanding or definitions or a perspective that made us see things incorrectly. And this is um, nowhere more obvious than the way you view love when you're in middle school. Okay, the way you view love in middle school, you could have sworn this is what love was like. She loved me, I promise. Only to find out, that's not love, weirdo. Like, that's what we all find out. Especially when it comes to what we would think when we were in middle school of how our parents should love us. Like, what love looks like from our parents. I remember, for me, in middle school, I thought if my parents loved me, they would never say no. It was clear that if you really loved me, you would always say yes, especially if my friend's parents said yes, you should say yes. I felt that way, that in my mind, for you to discipline me was against love. That if you really loved me, you wouldn't discipline me. But if you did discipline me, that was proof that you didn't love me. And I remember when I was 13, I got in, in trouble at school one day. And my dad told me, one more time, and the time for discipline will be yours. I said, okay, it's fine. Next day, got in trouble. My teacher calls home, so the time for discipline had come. So I come home from school, and my dad tells me, tells me to go wait in my room. I wait in my room until dinner. He calls me down. We eat dinner. He doesn't talk to me about it at all. Sends me back to my room, tells me to wait some more. So the whole time that I'm waiting, the entire time, I'm furious. I'm furious because in my mind, my dad had always told me that he loved me. He'd always told me that. But yet, in my mind, if he really loved me, he wouldn't be putting me through this. If he really loved me, he wouldn't put me through what he's putting me through. I remember my mom came up there kind of as a peacemaker to see how I was doing. She came up, she says, hey, how are you doing? And I remember telling her, dad hates me. Dad must hate me. That's the only conclusion I can come to. Dad must hate me. And so I remember that fateful moment. It was late in the evening. I'd been in my room waiting for hours, doing nothing, and I hear my dad coming up the stairs. So I did what any wise, great son would do. I opened up my Bible and pretended like I was reading it. <laughs> he literally walked in. I was like, yes, Father? Um, <laughs> just reading about mercy, no big deal. Blessed are the merciful, just, just saying. Um, I opened my Bible and he was like, let's have a conversation. I'm like, well, that didn't work. Um, Lord, where are you? That, that's kind of the moment that I had. But in that moment, the first thing he told me before any discipline happened, the first thing he told me is, Tyler, I love you. And in my mind, I thought, okay, 
that's comforting, but it still feels incompatible with this discipline. In my mind, love and discipline could not coexist. But fast forward to today, my outlook could not be more opposite, right? My outlook could not be more opposite. I'm so thankful that my dad disciplined me. I'm so thankful that he did that. Because now I've learned that actually not only can love and discipline coexist, they're inseparable from one another. That to love someone, especially to love your child, will cause you to inflict some minor short-term pain to keep them from major long-term pain. Love and discipline are inseparable. I see that now, but when I was 13, you couldn't have told me otherwise. See, what looked to me to be at odds actually was not. And when you read the Bible, you're gonna have a similar experience. When you read the scriptures, you're gonna have a similar experience where you read truths that seem to contradict each other. You're gonna read the Bible and the Bible's gonna say one truth, and you're gonna go, okay, I get that, I like that. And then it's gonna say another truth that seems to be incompatible with the other one. Give you an example. You're gonna read the scriptures, you're gonna find that the Bible says God is completely and totally sovereign over all things. It's clear in the text. But also you're gonna read how human beings are completely responsible for their actions. It seems incompatible, but they can coexist. You're gonna read in the scriptures how Jesus is 100% God. He came in the flesh, 100% God. But then you're gonna read how also he's 100% man in the same person. You're gonna read the Bible, talk about itself and say, These, this is written by human authors with human personalities and human genres and human experiences and yet every single word that is written down is the very word of God. So there's all these truths in the scripture that when you first see them, they seem to contradict. They seem to be incompatible. Well, God is telling us they're not. They coexist and they're inseparable from one another. And in our text today, in our text today, what Paul is gonna do is gonna show us two more truths in the scriptures that seem to be incompatible to us. God's grace and our good works. God's grace and our good works. Typically when we think about God's grace and our good works, they can seem to be at odds. We can talk about them as if, if you really believe in grace, then good works don't matter at all in any form or any fashion. Or you believe, no, good works are a good thing, so you have to make sure you're faithful, because if you're not faithful, then you may not get God's grace. What Paul's gonna unpack for us is saying, these two truths are not at odds, they're actually inseparable. They're inseparable. So let's look at Ephesians 2, eight through 10. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it, it'll be on the screen behind me. Ephesians 2, eight through 10, this is the word of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That we should walk in them. Paul is making two things abundantly clear. That our salvation is dependent totally on grace and no works. Our works mean nothing in salvation. But also he's saying, but that salvation is going to produce good works. So let's look at the first one. Our salvation is totally on grace. Look at verse 8 again. Verse 8 again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. This sentence, this statement summarizes the argument Paul has been making. In the first seven verses of Ephesians 2, he's been making the argument that it's all by grace. 
See, the fact that we're saved by grace and not works is an obvious conclusion to the first seven verses. Because in the first seven verses, Paul is unpacking what our state was like before God without Jesus and what the salvation is that he's given us in Christ. And what you begin to see is that obviously there's no way we could be saved apart from God's grace, apart from God's action. So what I want to do is briefly walk you through those first seven verses so you can see how this makes total sense. It's by grace that we've been saved through faith. See, it must have been God's grace and not our good works because in chapter 2, verse 1, we're told we were dead in our sins. Dead. Not sick. Not sort of dead. Dead in our sins because our sin had killed our relationship with God. We didn't want God. We couldn't want God. See, it must have been God's grace and not our good works because in verse 2, we're told that we had bound ourselves to Satan and his ambition to make a world without God. To make a world where God's not honored, where God's not talked about, where Jesus Christ is not worshipped. We bound ourselves to him. It must have been God's grace and not our good works, because in verse 3 we're told that our very passions, our desires, what we want most in this life, puts us at odds with God and makes his wrath come onto us. It puts his wrath over us. You read the first three verses of Ephesians 2 and it's clear our situation was worse than we thought. That we're surrounded everywhere with hopelessness. That inside of us, all we have is spiritual death and sinful passions. In front of us, all we have is Satan and his ambition to make a world without God. All we have over us is the wrath of God on us for our sin. Hopeless. That's the state. And when you read that, you have to come to the conclusion the only way these type of people are going to get saved is if God does something outside of them. If God is gracious and does something because they can't get out of it. No good work could get us out of it. But if that wasn't enough, if that wasn't enough to show us it must be grace and not our good works, Paul then describes our salvation. He describes the incredible gifts God has given us in our salvation. And typically when you and I think about salvation, we talk about it in terms like God had mercy on us. And God loved us. And God was kind to us. And all those things are incredibly true. But sometimes those things are lacking in describing the specific nature of what God did. See, God's love, God's mercy describes his disposition, his attitude, his affection, his emotional state towards us but it doesn't describe what he actually did. See, what God actually did is he took his people and united us with Christ. And united us with Christ. See, it's God's love, God's mercy, God's favor, God's grace that prompted him to do the unthinkable, to unite us with his son, to make us share in the life of Jesus Christ. That's what our salvation was. See, Jesus died for our sins and forgave us of every sin so that you and I could possess everything that was his. He died to forgive us so you and I could receive everything he received. So the resurrected Jesus Christ, everything he gets now in Christ, we get. So his father becomes our father. His spirit becomes our spirit. His life becomes our life. His righteousness is now our righteousness. God's love for him is now God's love for us. His eternal destiny of ruling over everything is now our eternal destiny with him. Church, you have to remember that in Christ, you don't get anything less than what Jesus deserves. 
You don't get anything less than what Jesus deserves. I want to read to you the text. You can see for yourself, Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. I'm not making this up. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, with his disposition towards us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were dead. What did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. Why are we alive? Because we're united with Christ. We didn't just get raised generally, we got raised with him. By grace you have been saved. Verse six, and he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice what he's doing. We've been united with him. Everything he gets, we get. That's what our salvation is. Verse seven, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us where? In Christ Jesus. I want you to know what your salvation is. It's not just a general love and grace. It's love and grace that motivated God to unite you with his son. So no matter how you feel, no matter what you're going through, no matter your record, you get treated the way Jesus deserves. Why? Because you're hidden in him. You've been united with him. That is our salvation. And when you think about that, what you begin to realize is no work of ours could ever contribute to that. No work of ours could ever warrant that sort of salvation because we were dead. We couldn't do anything. God didn't just save us. He united us with his son forever. And what God wants us to know that we know for sure is that all we did was receive all we did was receive. Look at verse 8 and 9. This is what Paul says. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul is being redundant on purpose. He's being redundant on purpose. He's saying it's not your own doing, not the result of works. He's saying it again and again. Why? One, because it's true. But two, because he knows you and I that our tendency is to move away from this truth. He knows that even if we intellectually agree with this truth, our tendency is still to move towards us taking a little bit of credit for our salvation. Our tendency in the people of God, even though we've been saved, there's a sin that still remains in us that pushes us towards, well, I still gotta do my part. I gotta do a little bit to be saved. See, we wanna take a little bit of credit because we wanna boast just a little. We, we want to take a little bit of pride in what we've contributed to our salvation. See, we don't want grace to come to us solely through faith, solely through just believing in Jesus. That's how I'm saved. That's it. We want to believe, no, no, but I brought a little bit to the table. It's faith plus a little bit of effort. And the reason I know this is our tendency, I know this is my tendency and your tendency, is because how quickly we move away from this gospel how quickly you and I treat ourselves when we sin, how quickly we begin to beat ourselves up mentally, how quickly we make ourselves labor under guilt for a good amount of time until we've really earned and really proven we feel bad. We wanna say, well, the reason I'm saved is because I beat myself up just a little bit. Probably more accurate for most of us, the reason I know we move away from this so quickly is how often we're bored with the gospel. How often we're apathetic with the gospel. Yeah, 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 Jesus died for me, I get it. Give me something deep, Tyler. 
I know that's my disposition. You hear the gospel talked about, and it doesn't do anything. You want to know why? Because we're like, I don't really need grace. I just need a little bit of help. Just give me a little bit, some couple practices to make me finally see how to realize my dreams. We don't think we need grace. We just need a little bit of self-help. Because what happens, we hear the gospel and we get jaded. If the situation's not that bad, I don't need that much grace. We move on, we get bored. But also, too, I know this is our tendency because how often with our spouses, with our friends, with our neighbors, with our coworkers, we talk to them about God, we find ourselves talking a lot about the morals that God wants you to uphold, the disciplines God wants in your life, and we don't talk very much about the Jesus he wants you to receive. We talk about the morals, the disciplines, the lifestyles that God really wants in your life, but we don't talk a lot about the Jesus and the grace he just wants you to receive. See, often our most difficult times with this truth, with God, is when we feel most consistent, most faithful, and most moral. Those are typically some of the driest times spiritually for us because we kind of start to believe, well, I'm not that bad. I don't really need that much grace. I've been pretty good the last month. And what's hard about the gospel, what's hard about God is he comes to you and tells you, your works don't mean anything. Do you want to know the people who got most angry with Jesus during his ministry? It wasn't the really immoral people. It was the really good people. The really good people, really faithful people, the really consistent, disciplined people got angry with Jesus. You want to know why? Because he told them, your works don't do anything. Nothing. Your discipline secures nothing. Your consistency earns you nothing. Your morals purchase nothing. God is not impressed. Everything you've done means nothing. We have a hard time with that. We have a very hard time with that because God is telling us your salvation is owing totally to grace. Totally to grace. Isaiah 64, 6, we've all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Even your best day is nothing to steer God's heart to love you. Nothing. Good works mean nothing in terms of your salvation. Now, when you hear that, and that begins to sit, you really start thinking about what that means, well, then we we can begin to make the faulty assumption that God doesn't care about good works in any form or any fashion. We can begin to believe, okay, if I believe in God's grace, I can do whatever I want because he gives me grace. He doesn't care about good works. But what this text clearly shows us is that God cares a lot about good works. He cares about them after you're saved. Your good works don't save you, but he cares a lot about them after he has saved you, that good works flow from our salvation. Look back at the text, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So no work can do anything. But look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're united with Christ. We're seated with him in the heavenlies. And the fruit of that is good works. 
See, good works are not an afterthought for God. They're not thrown together on the fly. No, God was preparing them for us. That when God was planning our salvation, he was also planning our good works. See, good works can do nothing to save us. They can't make us alive, but they are a sign that we have been made alive. So if you have a dead body in front of you, you can move the dead body's arms and legs all you want. It's not going to bring it back to life. It's not going to happen. You can move the arms and legs all that you want. You can do weekend at Bernie style. He's not coming back to life. But, but, if somehow that person is resuscitated, somehow they're resurrected, if they're made alive, the heart starts beating, the brain starts functioning, their lungs start breathing, what will happen inevitably? Their arms will start moving. Their legs will start moving. Their arms moving doesn't make them alive. It's a sign that they actually are alive. That's the role of good works. But when you begin to consider good works in this framework that God's given us, it's easy to think, well, if that's the case, if they're just fruit or just a sign that we're alive and they're, they're not, they don't make you alive, then why even do them? I mean, really, we, we have this conversation, this thought in our minds. We begin to think, well, that's not going to motivate anyone to obey. There's no consequence if you don't obey. So why would anyone ever obey? Why would you ever do any good works? See, God knew we would think like this. God knew our minds would go to this place. And he answers this, this question, this argument, this thought, this debate in our minds in Romans 5 and 6. And I want to show you this text. This is really crucial for you to understand. Paul's going to describe the amazing grace of God. And then he's going to describe when someone believes that, what does that do to them? So listen to Romans 5. Don't turn there. Romans 5, 20 through 21. Listen to the incredible grace of God in Christ. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, as, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's an incredible passage. He's saying if you're in Christ, when your sin increases, all grace does is increase all the more. That God never grows weary of forgiving you every time you sin, even when you think, no, no, I've sinned for the thousandth time. There's no way there's grace. He says, no, there's more and more grace. Because when you're in Christ, what reigns over your life is grace. It's incredible to think about that every time God never grows weary or tired of forgiving you. Every time. And so we can, we can begin to think, then why not just keep on sinning? Yeah, yeah, I messed up, no big deal. God's going to forgive me, it doesn't really matter. Paul answers this in the next verse, Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. What is Paul saying? He's saying when you experience the grace of God, the actual grace of God, what happens in you? You begin to want to follow him. You begin to want to do those good works. You begin to say, I want to kill sin. I want to follow Christ. Why? Not because you earned it, because you've been made alive. Notice the language in that text again. It says we've been buried with him. Union with him, united with Christ again. What he's saying is when Christ died, the old self died in us. 
that we don't live for the old self anymore. Jesus died for that. Now he's been raised to newness of life so that what? We're united with him. So now we walk in the newness of life of serving God. What you see is that the grace of God, when it hits a person and is believed by a person, it produces good works. Martin Luther, he started the Reformation, and his main point was that faith alone saves you, not works, not church attendance, not morals, faith alone in the grace of God through Jesus Christ is what saves you. That's it. But listen to what he said. Listen to the statement. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Listen to that statement, it's really, really important. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. When you see God for who he is, you can't help but follow him. Can't help but follow him. This is exactly my experience when I first trusted Christ. Uh, I got saved when I was 18, and growing up we were around church a lot. Around church a lot, we went to, you know, Sunday services, we went to church camp every year where I got resaved like every year apparently, and, and I did that for a long time. And I even got invited, I got invited by our, the youth pastor of the church I was at to go through this Bible study with him and like, t you know, 10 other guys. And I, I was invited in all these things, but can I tell you, I knew that I didn't care. I didn't care. Like, nothing in me really wanted to do the things they were talking about. I just liked the people. I like the people there, I like the pastors, and, and you know, I believe generally, yeah, Jesus is important. Yeah, sure, he's great, but I just wanna hang out with the people at this church. And I remember, I mean, it was to the point where one time in that little Bible study of just 10 people, just 10 people, I fell asleep in the middle of it. Just fell asleep, because I didn't care. Didn't care, I, I was disengaged from every conversation. Nothing in me wanted to do anything we were talking about. I thought it was great that they were doing it, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to until I experienced the grace of God for myself. Until there was this church retreat I went on when I was 18 and all of a sudden God woke me up and I just could not get away from this Jesus. Everything in me realized, I don't know all the gospel means, I just know that I need him, I wanna go after him. Because his forgiveness, his love, his joy is like nothing I've ever known. And even though that was crazy for me, like I remember thinking this is really weird. The weirdest thing for me was when I got home from the retreat and I actually wanted to obey. That was the most bizarre thing for me because I spent most of my life basically faking it, just showing up to events and not really caring, but all of a sudden I get home and I've been told hundreds of times to read my Bible and to pray, but actually I wanted to. It was a foreign concept to me that you could actually want to do things the Bible talks about. I thought it was just a list of rules that no one really ever wanted to do. I've been told hundreds of times to fight for sexual purity or to confess my sins or to actually share the gospel with people, but all of a sudden, I wanted to. I wanted to. And it didn't make me sinless by any stretch of the imagination. It doesn't make me sinless now. But what changed in me is all of a sudden, I wanted to obey, and when I didn't, I actually had sorrow over it. I actually had sorrow that I didn't follow this God who had loved me so much. See, it was knowing the grace of God then that made me want to obey, and the same is true for me today. What makes me want to obey God today is the same grace of God. See, the counterintuitive realities of the way the Spirit of God motivates his people to obey God is not by reminding you of all the good works you haven't done. It's not the reminding you of all the things you're still not very good at. No, the way the Spirit of God encourages you and fuels you to obey is by reminding you of all the grace you've already been given. 
by reminding you, you've forgotten. You're seated in the heavenlies with him. Everything he deserves, you get. All that love, all the acceptance, all the mercy, yours. See, every time in my life now, when following Jesus becomes weary for me, what I usually find out through conversations with my community and as I talk to my wife about it, as I pray about it, what is always at the root of it is that I've begun to think that my obedience is what warrants God's love for me. I begin to think that if I don't follow through on my end, God's pretty upset with me. He's disappointed. He's angry. I better be better next time. And what begins to happen? What does that do? It doesn't make me want to draw closer to God. It makes me want to run away. It makes me want to pull away from him. And there are many of you in this room hearing my voice who following Jesus for you has become a very weary thing. Following Jesus for you has become a very tiresome thing. You think about vacation and rest and you think about not following Jesus. You think about, I want to be away from having to serve other people. I want to be away from having to read the scriptures. I want to do whatever I want. All of a sudden, rest looks like not following Jesus. Can I just tell you, we, we would do a better job as a people, as a church, as a community, if we were more honest when this is the case. If we were more honest when we actually are tired and weary of following Jesus. Because you're in this room and you're trying to fulfill those good works. You're trying. You really are trying to forgive those people who've wronged you and who've hurt you, but bitterness seems to keep creeping up. You're trying to read the scriptures. You're trying to pray. You're trying to be generous. But over and over again, all you can see, all you can think about is all the things you're failing at. And the only thing you pray about is how, God, I promise I won't do that next time. I promise. I promise that I'll be better tomorrow. Just give me one more chance. And what that does, it makes following Jesus very tiring. Very tiring. Can I ask you, if you're in that place, when was the last time you just stopped and received the grace of God for you? When was the last time you just remembered, my works don't do anything to his love for me? Nothing. Do you really believe that? Or do you still have this lie in the back of your mind that says, no, 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 but surely not this sin? No. When's the last time you just remembered you are seated with Christ Jesus in the heavenlies? You've been raised to life with him. You're hidden in him. You're qualified by him that in this moment, God is not waiting for some better version of you to arrive. No, he's already satisfied because Jesus has taken care of everything. When's the last time you just sat in that and remembered if I don't do any good work today, God's still going to love me. When's the last time you thought about the fact that you should keep fighting sin? Keep fighting it. Let's kill it. Let's fight for good works. But when you don't, when you fail, don't think those good works will save you. This is exactly what the Apostle John told the church in 1 John 2, 1. I love this verse. He says, my little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He says, fight your sin. Fight for good works. Do it. But when you fail, do not think those good works are what God's after anyways, what can make him love you anyways. 
You can't be righteous enough. There is no one in this room, no one in this church, no one in this world who is inherently righteous. There's one. His name is Jesus. You go to him. You go to him. When you fail, you go to him. And guess what? When sin increases, grace increases all the more. He never gets tired of forgiving you. If you're weary, think about that. Meditate on that. But there are others of us There are others of us in this room that you need to be concerned how at peace you are with your sin. You need to be concerned how at peace you are, how content you are with your lack of good works. That you find yourself persisting in thinking or attitudes or actions that are clearly against the word of God clearly against what he's called his people to do. You've become content in your justifying bitterness. You're saying there's no way I'm ever going to forgive my spouse, no way I'm ever going to forgive my brother or sister in Christ. You've become content and satisfied in your love for money. And you keep putting off and putting off and putting off, finally giving anything to anybody or anyone. You've become content and become starting to justify that sexual distortion in your life. That, that thing in your life that's distorting this precious gift God gave for a husband and a wife to enjoy. And a myriad of other sins I'm sure that we're struggling and becoming content in. I hope you've seen clearly from the word of God, not from me. Hope you've seen clearly from the word of God that grace does not remain dormant in a person. That when you receive the spirit of God, when God raises you to life, that grace does not remain dormant. That the grace of God does not excuse a flippant attitude towards sin. See, grace does not produce complacency. Real grace from God, if you've really experienced it, does not produce complacency towards sin or towards good works. No, what Paul says, when you believe and receive the grace of God, you have fervency and zeal to put to death your sin and fight for those joyous works God's calling you to do. But if that's not there, you need to be concerned. Hear me clearly. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm not saying you don't know Jesus, but what I am saying is you need to be concerned. You need to know, you need to know that sin in your life is not playing games. That that sin is thinking about taking you places of coldness towards God, coldness towards his word, coldness towards other people. The sin wants to take you places you never wanted to go. You need to be honest and open up to other people in your life. If it's a secret sin and no one knows about it, I'm telling you, open up about it to somebody. That sin wants to kill you. We're told in 1 Peter 5 that we have an enemy. Satan is prowling around like a lion looking for someone to devour. You know he wants to devour those who are hiding those secret sins. Who are chalking it up as a personality trait. And I just tell you, we've all been there. All of us have been there and probably will be there when you begin to misunderstand grace in such a way where you start excusing a flippant attitude towards sin. That in the name of grace, God would never want me to change. 
In the name of grace, God would never challenge or convict me. In the name of grace, my life should be smooth and never have any rocky spots. We've all been in that season, but can I tell you, the way out is not through shame. The way out is not to tell yourself, okay, now is the time I'm finally going to change. If someone opens up to you about this sin, their calloused heart, can I tell you the way you counsel them is not to shame them out of it. Not to remind them and tell them that if they don't do this, that if they don't do this, who knows what's going to happen. No, you start where God starts. Remind them of who they are in Christ. The way out of those dangerous spots is the grace of God. It's for you to sit and to contemplate the reality that you've been raised with him. You've been loved by him. There's no sin he can't forgive. You need to spend time marveling at this Jesus who said, I know you hate me and I'm still going to die for you. You spend time marveling at this Jesus who would say, I know that that sin seems intriguing, but everything it offers, it can't deliver. And everything it offers that you really want, deep down inside, all the approval, all the love, not to feel lonely, I'm telling you, I'm coming back. I'm going to fulfill everything. Spend time thinking about this Jesus and all that he promises to be. Colossians 3 says that when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will be with him in glory. I'm telling you, everything sin offers, Jesus is actually going to be able to fulfill when he comes back. The way out of that dangerous place is not to shame yourself more. It's to go back to the grace of God. Because when you see the grace of God for what it is, you'll see your sin for what it is. You'll see good works for what they are. That all sin is is getting in the way of you enjoying your union with Christ. That you're loved the same way Jesus is loved. And when you see that, when you believe that, repentance is the natural overflow. Because you don't earn by doing it. You're just embracing what's already been given to you. See, God has done something and is doing something in Christ that we cannot compute. Doesn't make sense to us. The salvation that no good work could ever qualify you for and no particular sin could ever disqualify you for. The same grace that saves the inconsistent, the immoral, the messy, the broken, the grace that saves those people is the same grace that saves the upstanding, moral, disciplined, faithful people. And that same grace begins to work in us as we believe it, love for God and love for people that makes us sacrifice. Makes us sacrifice. See, God has made us a people of grace, not some cheap substitution that tries, that tries to add to salvation or take away from his word, but a people of grace, united with Christ forever. And when you experience this, good works make all the sense in the world. Let's pray together. Father, would, would you do something this morning? Would you remind us in this room that there is nothing we can do to make you love us? There is nothing we can do to take it away. God, you have raised your people up 
and everything Jesus deserves, we receive. God, I want to pray particularly for those of us who feel weary, that we're tired of following Jesus, that we're beginning to hear more and more accusations in our minds, that all we seem to consider are all the ways we failed. God, would you lift our eyes from ourselves and would you fix them on this Jesus who says, I've taken care of everything. You were never saved because you were good. You were saved because I was gracious. God, would you wow us with that? We've become numb to this reality. We're apathetic towards it. We're bored with it. And God, we're never gonna see you for who you are if you don't show up. Oh God, if you were to keep a record of sins, who could stand? But blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose iniquity is no more. And God, I want to pray for those of us who find ourselves in a place where we are content with our sin. That we're content with saying no to the good works God has called us to do. God, would you bring to mind that good work you've called us to do that we keep saying no to, keep running away from. And God, would you do what only you can, not shame us out of it, but remind us of the grace we've already been given in Christ. God, I'm so thankful that's how you operate. That you've made a salvation that the way out is through grace. The way out is through your love. And that Jesus has promised to take care of us and to fulfill everything we're longing for. God, would you give us your spirit that we would believe your word in such a way that we would obey knowing I've already been given everything. And we would be a people who this city sees our good works and recognizes it's not because they're good. It's because their God has been gracious. Oh God, draw us close to you today. We ask these things in Christ's name.